This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, The Progressive, Bernie Sanders, The Onion Radio News, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Thank you for joining us. It is Thursday, last show of the week, and once again, I want to take the time to thank my best friend for six months, Jimmy Fallon, for his matching donation of $26,000 to DonorsChoose.org last night to help arts education in America's schools. I can honestly say nobody saw that coming. It's not just PR, he's actually a nice guy. And you know, I needed a happy story right now because what with the ongoing budget crisis, unrest in the Middle East and disaster in Japan, hope is in short supply. And when something is in short supply, I say corner the market and jack up the price. (laughs) This is Stephen Colbert's Bears and Balls. Misery edition. As always, I'm joined by my financial mentor, a red plastic button. Taught me everything I know. You're worthless. Tough love. First up, Japan. Folks, I just don't have the words to express my condolences to the Japanese people, mostly because I don't speak Japanese. But there is something we can all do. Go to redcross.org. Yes, or... Donate $10 by texting Red Cross to 90999. Uh huh, or get your greed on. Right. Because even in the darkest hour, there are profits to be made. Just listen to CNBC's Larry Kudlow on day one of this tragedy. I mean, the human toll here yeah. looks to be much worse than the economic toll, and we can be grateful for that. Yes. Those eloquent words of comfort really hit me right here. Because that's where I keep my wallet. Shh, shh, no one will hurt you. Now, some were offended by Kudlow's comments, so he apologized like a man on Twitter. I did not mean to say human toll in Japan less important than economic toll. Talking about markets, I flubbed the line, sincere apology. Heartfelt, thumb-typed. Cudlow, sorry, frowny face, move on. Because all he meant was a lot of people have died, and that is terrible. But the good news is, it's not affecting your portfolio. But you know what might affect your portfolio? Bees. No. Lionel Richie memorabilia. Usually, but not now. Starving brown people. Well, that's not how I would have put it, but yes, a food shortage. Right now, food prices, especially in developing countries, are skyrocketing. A report from the UN finds global prices have just hit a new record. Food inflation, which is already very bad, is going to get worse. Food stockpiling by some nations could fuel further spikes. Food riots could even hit the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Bluto is right. (laughs) Rising prices lead to unrest. I've seen this coming, folks. And I have made a fortune in soup stock stock 
and banana futures. But some anti-capitalist buzzkills like the UN say rampant speculation in commodities like corn, wheat, and rice is an irresponsible manipulation of the third world food supply. No, it is not. It's just playing lotto with someone else's lunch money. Okay, here's how it works. Timmy, come on out here. Say hi to Timmy, everybody. All right. All right, Timmy. Okay, Timmy. Now, Timmy here represents whatever might need food. Let's say a human child. Now, Timmy, we're gonna gamble with your food supply, okay? Okay. All right, now, do you know how to play craps, Timmy? No. Perfect. Let's see, uh, nine. I win. Control of the food but supply. I want those things. I know, that's why it's such a great investment. Okay, I'll tell you what, I will sell you one of these, but I, I have to warn you, because of market fluctuations, the price has gone up considerably. How much is it? How much do you have? Five dollars. What a coincidence! They cost six. I'll take your five and you can owe me. There you go. Now, go eat that someplace where I can't see and care about you. Get out of here! Rick Scott is the governor-elect of Florida, and how this guy got elected is, uh, is just couldn't be more remarkable. But now he has his economic team as he gets ready to take over. He has quoted research by a former Obama administration official, a guy named uh, Alan Kruger, who's a preeminent uh, uh, researcher on unemployment, and he's a well-regarded professor of economics at Princeton. Uh, and so uh, Rick Scott has uh, quoted um, uh, the research of Alan Kruger, and he says, uh, uh, this is Rick Scott's, Rick Scott's uh, again, his uh, economic team, quote, according to Alan Kruger's research, the amount of time uh, people spend on, uh, uh, who are uh, getting, you know, unemployment, the amount of people at the time people on unemployment spent looking for a job only averaged 20 minutes a day, exclamation point. Within two weeks of unemployment ending, that increased, uh, but only to 70 minutes a day. Uh, uh, and then the median duration of unemployment benefits uh, increased nationally from 10 to 18 weeks. So he's saying, look, we've increased this time, but they don't look for jobs. They don't even seriously look for jobs until after they've um, been taken off unemployment. The only thing is, um, that's uh, not true. Uh, so of what course they, that's not of true. Of course it's not true. Um, so, of course, the first thing he wants to do is uh, tighten job search requirements for people getting benefits, cut off assistance for those who don't comply, mm -hmm. um, and assign community work for those who don't get a job in 10 weeks. So essentially, uh, make, put, essentially give a, some sort of prison sentence to people who don't get a job in 12 weeks. Uh, the goals would be to increase uh, employment, reduce the payout of unemployment benefits, as well as the unemployment compensation tax burden on businesses. Um, what does he think is happening with unemployment? Why, no, why, why does he think they don't have jobs? 
Yeah, no, no, this is this is what I love because Rick Scott is an example of a Republican who will turn around and while criticizing Obama and his presidency will say Obama did nothing to help the unemployment rate. So he's this very same type of person who would say, oh, we don't have enough jobs in America. What happened to jobs? Why hasn't Obama increased jobs, right? right? right. And then when it comes to the issue of unemployment, right. when it comes to the issue of helping those who are unemployed, it's like, ah, oh, these people are lazy. All these jobs out there. <laughs> All these jobs out there, they won't. That's a great right. point. That's a great point. It drives me nuts. Right. So uh, uh, anyway, so Kruger says uh, the research, which was conducted during the stronger economic period of the mid-2000s, uh, he says, the, first of all, they got it wrong. It's double. They spent 40 minutes a day looking for a job. Um, and again, if you, well, whatever. Uh, I mean, I guess technically if you're unemployed, you should probably spend more time looking for a job. But really, that's, that's on you. No one who's on unemployment insurance, 99% of people who are on unemployment insurance want a job. Um, so and then so they quoted the research wrong and secondly he says the unemployed in the US devote more time searching for a job than unemployed workers in other countries uh, yet Scott's teams make it seem the unemployed put little effort into finding a job so again they've totally manipulated the issue as if people on unemployment I mean they look here's what they do they look for jobs in their field right of because, course because you don't when you're unemployed and you're unemployed for 18 20 weeks you don't want to take a job at Starbucks and then quit it instantly if you've been a data researcher you want to try and find a job in that field at some point you're going to move on. But the idea of unemployment isn't to get you through six days. The unemployment benefits are designed to get you through a period while you try and restart your career, not take a job 50 times below your level, which, by the way, apparently aren't there either. Right. So can I say something really quick about unemployment benefits? You know, there was a blog written about me and how I complain about taxes, right? And I want to clarify something. When, when I get taxed, I want my money to go toward helping people in need, okay? I want it to go toward infrastructure. I want it to go toward things that are going to better our community. So if someone was going to take a certain amount of money out of every paycheck and put it into unemployment, right, benefits, I would be 100% for it because I think that's what our federal money should be used for, not defense spending. I mean, of course we need defense spending to an extent, but no, we not... Need, don't even back on that. We need way less. We need way, way less. less. The reason why defense spending is so expensive is because we're funding private contractors, right? So uh, do I want my money to go to that? Hell no. Do I want my money to go toward unemployment insurance? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, defense spending, Barney Franks with some key important stuff about defense spending, which we're going to do today, too. Now I can't see the clock at all. <laughs> now the clock has been removed from the picture entirely. Uh, so maybe we'll get to that. I don't have any idea how much time is left. Um, 8.32 p.m. Eastern. Can you see it? Yep. All right, you're in charge. Okay. Um, so well, When it's time to take a break, I'll go like this. Yeah, right, okay, all right, fair <laughs> enough. So anyway, that's Rick, Scott's, uh, that's Rick Scott's team. Again, missing the total point of unemployment insurance. It's not to get you through a day and a half until you take a job at McDonald's. Um, now, but Rick Scott... So he was the uh, head of the Hospital Corporation of America, which uh, he was the head of Columbia Hospital, which merged eventually with the Hospital Corporation of America, mm -hmm. forming Columbia HCA, the biggest private for-profit hospital chain in the country, a gigantic, important company in reshaping how we were treated uh, for any type of ailment in this country and how Medicare billing worked, everything. Again, for-profit hospital. Mm -hmm. Big chain as they started, and they started getting more and more hospitals and buying more and more hospitals. Um, so in 1997, federal agents raided the Columbia HCA offices. He ran the company. He's the head of the company. They raided the offices. 
a huge scandal over the company's business practices and Medicare billing procedures. It wasn't just, uh, uh, it was the FBI and the IRS. All right, involved. so he obviously did something right. a little shady. Right. Well, they admitted 14 felonies and paid $600 million in fines to the government for Medicare fraud. It is the biggest, largest fraud settlement in the history of the United States of America, over $600 million. Overall, counting civil litigation, they paid out $2 billion in settlements. $2 billion. Rick Scott ran the company. He resigned. They forced him. The board forced him out within a short period of time after federal agents raided the offices. They kicked down the doors and raided the offices armed with warrants, and it was all true. They admitted 14 counts uh, of, uh, of significant fraud, and again, including Medicare billing, defrauding the federal government of money that we pay into, of our money Rick Scott and his company stole. They did not charge him personally. They didn't charge anybody personally, but he runs the company. So obviously, they gave him $9.88 million when they forced him out of the company. So they're like, okay, well, here's your $10 million check. You have to go. Thanks for committing this enormous Medicare fraud and stealing from the American taxpayers. Here's $10 million. Oh, and by the way, you still have your stock options. They're worth $350 million. Oh, my God. So he gets $360 million for defrauding the government, and then he becomes a venture capitalist, right, where he makes just investing, making more and more money. It's all working out great for Rick Scott. Um, by the way, he was George W. Bush's partner in the Texas Rangers. Mm -hmm. uh, the base, that's a baseball team. Yeah. I, I figured it was a sports-related <laughs> But you, didn't, thing. you <laughs> figured it was sports-related. Didn't own the actual Texas Rangers, the lawman, like the Chuck Norris was in. Um, uh, so uh, he's George W. So he's, you know, he's, but these are his boys. These are his boys. He's fine. $360 million he's paid off. Nearly half of what they had to pay the government as part of their settlement, the largest settlement in U.S. history, but just a fraction of the $2 billion dollars they overall paid in settlements for defrauding me and you. And now he's involved in this, and this guy who took $360 million after defrauding us, again, I'm gonna keep referring to it, mm -hmm. $2 billion. Jesus. $2 billion they have to pay for defrauding, $600 million in fraud. Now he's got the audacity to sit here and talk about, and hit with his economic team, that the big problem here is that people who have lost their jobs in this giant recession caused by banks that he took money from as a venture capitalist that he's worked with, that he's made all this money off, that he thinks the reason these people are unemployed and the reason they're staying unemployed is because they're not looking for work. Right. And, yeah. the, and the good people of Florida uh, elected him governor in November. He narrowly won. He won by like 68,000 votes, something like that. I don't remember what the actual uh, total was, but he didn't win by much. He won by less than 2% beating uh, Alex Sink. Uh, look, he's a terrible guy. There's no question about it. But can I make one quick, very superficial point? No. All right. No, yeah, what do you got? Scariest looking man. Totally. Governor? Yeah, very scary looking guy. I wouldn't trust that guy with anything. No, I mean, I know he should wear a suit and tie because the he's clearly covering up the Aryan Brotherhood swastikas that he got while he was inside. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like a skinhead. He's really scary. All right, he doesn't. He's not that. I'm obviously mm -hmm. making that up. But he should be glad that he didn't have to go to prison for that because it's right. pretty clear who he would have joined in prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, come on. Look at that. One more picture of that guy. Yeah, like he's not, like that guy's, how did he get elected? What oh. kind of clown campaign did Alex Sink run in Florida to lose to this guy who's responsible for the biggest fraud in the history of the United States of America? Well, more
most cards than hooks I read more maps than books I feel like every chance to leave Is another chance I should've took Every minute is a mile I've never felt so hollow I'm an old abandoned church With broken pews and empty eyes My secret's for a book Watch me as I cut myself wide open On this stage as I am paid to spill my guts Won't see homeless bring On Tuesday, Barack Obama issued an executive order that could have been written just as easily by Ronald Reagan, the Bushes, or Bill Clinton. With this executive order, entitled Improving Regulation and Regulatory Review, Obama capitulated to business and endangered consumers, workers, and the environment. Obama implicitly accepted the ideology of the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers that we've got too much regulation of business in America, which we don't have. See Wall Street's mess and the BP oil spill. Obama adopted the recommendations of these business groups, which is to boil everything down to a cost-benefit analysis. But when the issue is a matter of life and death, how are the agencies going to weigh that against the cost of business to manufacture a safer product? Obama's executive order orders agencies to specify performance objectives rather than specifying the behavior or manner of compliance required of the companies. This lets the CEOs off real easy. They can say their objectives are to make safe products and stop polluting, but by not requiring them to do this and by not punishing them when they don't, Obama invites the CEOs just to say, we tried. This executive order is yet another signal that Obama has thrown in his lot with corporate America. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Well, it is very hard to follow our leader, Harry Reid, and Tom Hawken. I just want to say this about Harry. These are tough times for our country in so many areas. Thank God we have Harry, Lead as, Harry Reid as the majority leader in the United States Senate today. A couple of months ago, heard on the television radio, saw in the newspapers, a bunch of people are ganging up. And they have this brilliant idea that they want to privatize Social Security. These multi-millionaires, and in some cases billionaires, think it's a great idea to cut benefits for working people when they get to Social Security age. They want to raise the retirement age. Now think of those guys who are banging nails today at 70 years of age, banging nails. I don't think so. I don't think the nurses in this country are going to be lifting patients at 70 years of age. That's not what we're going to allow to happen. Now, I'll tell you why some of our Republican friends really hate Social Security. Do you know why they hate Social Security? 
because it is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It is working. Before Social Security, 50% of seniors in this country lived in poverty. Before Social Security, when people had problems with disabilities, they were out there on their own. Before Social Security, if a wife lost her husband, Tom Harkin talked about that, had a bunch of kids, she was out on her own begging, begging to survive. Social Security has worked. Today, instead of 50% of the elderly being poor, the number is too high, but it's down to 10%. And we're doing all of that at a very modest administrative cost. As the majority leader has said, and I want you all to think about it, because one of the problems that we have is that people take Social Security for granted. Think about it. This is what the majority leader just said. For 75 years, in good times and in bad times, when the folks on Wall Street a few years ago destroyed our economy, all right, when millions of people lost their lifetime savings, Social Security was there paying out every nickel owed to every eligible American. Let's not forget that. Now, there are some people who say, you know, we have a serious deficit problem. We do. $1.6 trillion deficit, $14 trillion debt. And these people then conflate. They say, well, we have this huge deficit problem. We've got to cut Social Security. And as the majority leader said, anybody who tells you that, who tells you that Social Security has contributed one nickel to our deficit or national debt is simply not telling you the truth. Well, you use that word. Social Security today has a $2.6 trillion surplus. Social Security today can pay out every benefit owed to every eligible American for the next 26 years, at which point it could pay out 78% of the benefits. And as Tom Hawkins just mentioned, if we want Social Security to be strong for the next 60, 70 years, you lift that cap, start at 250, ask the billionaires to start contributing. And the other, the other point to be made, the other point to be made is Social Security is not funded by the U.S. Treasury. Social Security is funded by the payroll taxes that working people and their employers have put into it. Now, if you want to talk about, if you want to talk about the deficit, talk about the wars. Talk about tax breaks for billionaires. Talk about the Wall Street bailout. Don't talk about Social Security. Let me, there are some people who say, well, you know, Social Security is just a bunch of IOUs. Well, tell that to the folks on Wall Street who own Social Security bonds. They're going to get paid. 
Tell that to our friends in China who have invested in U.S. Treasury bonds. They're going to get paid. And you know what? Everybody on Social Security is going to get paid as well. Let me conclude. Let me conclude by reading this. And this is an important statement. This is what the Social Security Trust Fund bond says, and I quote, this bond is incontestable in the hands of the old age and survivors insurance trust fund. The bond is supported by the full faith and credit of the United States. And the United States is pledged to the payment of the bond with respect to both principal and interest, end of quote. In other words, Social Security is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government it has never once failed. It is not going to fail. And our job right now is to stand up to those people who are attacking Social Security, not for financial reasons. They are attacking it for ideological and political reasons. We're going to stand up, hands off Social Security. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. So we can get some. It's the Onion Radio News. A judge orders God to break up into smaller deities. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Calling the theological giant stranglehold on the religious industry, quote, blatantly anti-competitive, a U.S. district judge has ruled that God is in violation of anti-monopoly laws and ordered him to be broken up into several less powerful deities. District Judge Charles Elliott Schofield handed down the decision in Washington, D.C. earlier today. God has willfully and actively thwarted competition with such unfair scare tactics, and in the process he has carved out for himself an illegal monotheism. Leading theologians are applauding the God breakup, saying that it will usher in a new era of greater worshiping options, increased efficiency, and more personalized service. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at the Okay, Republican governors have got their priorities straight. Just consider this. This is insane. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan was the first president in the history of the United States 
in the history of the United States to raise taxes on working people and cut taxes on the very rich at the same time. Probably the first president to do it in the same, you know, presidency. But he was the first president in the history of the United States to cut taxes on the rich and raise taxes on the poor and unworking people. It's been a few years. You know, the Republicans have been kind of reluctant to do this. The, ta- the Reagan tax rates, you know, he originally crashed it down to 28%. Bush, you know, his, his you know, Bush, El- Bush the elder took it up, I think, to 30, 31, 32, 33, whatever it was. And, you know, lost office for that because he had said, read my lips, no new taxes. And the billionaires took him seriously. But he, hey, you know, he was seeing this deficit creeping up. Bill Clinton comes along and says, okay, we can, we can fix this. We can fix the deficit. You want to fix the deficit? Are you really worried about the deficit? Just raise the taxes on the, t- on the richest people. For, you know, everybody else pays the exact same amount. And the rich people actually pay the same f- amount in the first couple hundred thousand dollars they earn. But after that, it goes up another 3%. Three, just ask them for three pennies out of every dollar. And not just out of every dollar, but out of every dollar they earn after they earn, you know, whatever it is, a quarter million, 300,000, 500,000, a million, whatever it was back then. And when you extrapolate it into inflation-adjusted dollars. And guess what happened? Bill Clinton's 3% tax increase balanced the budget. In fact, not only did it balance the budget, it created a surplus. Now, you would think that, you know, we're a nation of smart people. Right. We're very proud of how intelligent we are. We we have a good educational system. Well, you know, we did before Reagan uh, put Bill Bennett in charge of it. But, you know, we 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 have a the remnants of a good educational system. We have uh, a, a 200 year history of being the smartest guys on the block. I mean, we invented the light bulb and the movie and all, you know, Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla and all is, you know, people came to America to be inventors. Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, on and on the list goes, right? All the cool stuff was invented here. We may make it in China, but, you know, we invent iPhones here. We invent transistors here. We invented the integrated circuit here. We invented all this stuff here. We're smart people. So you'd think that as smart people, we could look at the situation and say, okay, for 200 years, the government had, you know, a small deficit, but you need to have a small deficit because you actually have to, you know, it's a good thing to be able to sell treasury bonds so that people can invest in their government. And it's also a good thing for the country to have the flexibility to borrow money during an emergency because, for example, when we were fighting both Hitler and Tojo during World War II on two fronts, in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, with everything we had, we had to borrow 129% of GDP. We had to borrow more money in one year than the entire economic productivity of the country. Now, we paid that back in five years by just growing our way out of it. But the bottom line is you need to have some flexibility. But you would think that the that we would be smart enough to say, you know, from George Washington until Ronald Reagan, with the exception of World War II and the Civil War, we really didn't have much of a deficit. I mean, Reagan came into office and it was it wasn't even a trillion dollars. There wasn't much of a deficit at all. 
And then he cut taxes on the rich from 74% down to 28%. All of a sudden, boom! $3 trillion deficit when he leaves office. Now, don't you think the average person would look at that or the average American voter and go, there's something wrong with that? And then the conservatives run around and go, oh, look at all the great times we had during the last couple of years of the Reagan presidency. Well, I'll tell you, you give me a couple trillion dollars of borrowed money, I can show you what it looks like to live large. And then George Herbert Walker Bush tried to keep it where Reagan had it, but uh, even though he'd raised taxes on working people, I mean, there's a limit to what you can squeeze out of that particular turnip. And so George Herbert Walker Bush had to, <clears throat> excuse me, had to raise taxes slightly, which slowed the rate at which the deficit was expanding. But it continued to expand. He added another trillion or so to the debt. And Bill Clinton comes along. And in his second term, he says, okay, that's it. I'm reelected. I'm going for broke. We are going to stop this annual debt. Now, I realize that the Republicans are out there. In fact, they've even re rewritten a bunch of web pages on this saying it was a Republican Congress that pushed this. This was a Republican idea. The fact of the matter is that Bill Clinton's tax increase from 33 to 36 percent on the wealthiest Americans did not get one single Republican vote in the House of Representatives. Not one. And in the Senate, I believe it not. It didn't get one. It might have gotten one or two, but it basically the same thing. In fact, the Republicans were warning us of Armageddon. Newt Gingrich said that this was going to create the greatest depression we'd ever had in the history of the United States. We were going to, this was going to be 1930 on steroids. Bob Dole was saying the same thing. I mean, you had all these Republicans back in the day in 86 running around, you know, with their, with their hair on fire, 96, rather, running around with their hair on fire going, this is it, this is it. You know, he's raising taxes on rich people by 3%, and only on the you know, after, I mean, they pay the same taxes as working people do on the first 100000 bucks or 200000 whatever it was. And, you know, it's only on their really, really rich. And the world is going to end. Well, the world didn't end. We had a surplus. So George W. Bush comes into office. He says, okay, well, let's cut the taxes on the rich people back to where Reagan and my daddy had them and see what happens. Well, gee, when Reagan and his daddy had those low taxes, we were generating deficits every year. And George W. Bush runs up another $5 trillion in deficits. So, again, you would think that if the average person who's only kind of marginally paying attention to this can figure this stuff out, and most of them have, I think, you'd think that a professional politician would figure it out, like Paula Page in Maine, or John Kasich in Ohio, or Chris Christie in New Jersey. But no, these idiots, these Republican governors in these three states are proposing to cut taxes on millionaires and billionaires. Of course, it's their base. I mean, these people who got them elected proposing to cut taxes on them so that they can also so that they can then say, oh, we don't have any money anymore. And they can cut social services to poor people. I mean, in Ohio, Kasich wants to pass the same estate tax, a very similar one that like Paula Page is doing in Maine. You know, in the state of Maine, Paula Page, the brand-new Republican governor, not only wants to... He's not only throwing the middle class under the bus, 
He's not only trying to cut programs for working people in the state, but he's giving a tax cut to 400 people. And it's not even, I mean, there's only 400 people in the state that would qualify for the end of the estate tax in Maine. And they're not all going to die this year. It's not even actually them who benefit from it. It's their kids. This should be called the Paris Hilton tax because when Paris Hilton's parents die, she gets the money. So it's not it's not her parents who are taxed. It's her. And what did she do to earn that? Oh, that's right. She was a member of the Lucky Sperm Club. But that's it. Right? So maybe we should call this the Lucky Sperm Club tax, whatever. Uh, Paula Page wants to do away with it in Maine. Say, we're not going to tax millionaires and billionaires anymore. Can't do that. Sorry. And, oh, gee, look at this. We cut taxes on rich people. We don't have as much money as we used to have. I guess we're going to have to cut programs for working people. Chris Christie, same deal. Page is actually, LePage in Maine actually wants to raise property taxes on average working people to pay in part for the cut on the estate tax for the 400 millionaires and billionaires in his state. How do these guys... I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm astounded. Kasich in Ohio, he wants to have a similar ta estate tax cut for millionaires. At the same time, he wants to cut government programs for schools, nursing homes, food banks, and children's hospitals. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, you know, children's hospitals and, and, and uh, even as an adult, <laughs> you, you always, I remember Danny Thomas out there, you know, St. Jude's. Well, they're still pitching it. His daughter is, Marlo, and other people, you know, in the movies even. Give to St. Jude's. We got we give free health care services to kids. I thought having a, a hospital for children was like a noble thing. Well, apparently not in Ohio because John Kasich wants to eliminate or cut the services to hospitals for children, at least children who are not the parents of millionaires and billionaires, so that he can pay for a cut the estate tax and taxes on millionaires and billionaires. Rick Snyder doing the same thing in Michigan. Chris Christie in New Jersey. Chris Christie, in fact, said in order to pay for his tax cut on millionaires, he's going to have to stop education funding in his state, or much of it. He's going to cut, cut funding to the schools. And a judge came along and said, this is a violation of the laws of the state of New Jersey. You can't do this. Bye.
And finally, staying on that point, one of the key things missing from any discussions of budgets and deficits is the other side of the ledger. The media are fixated on spending cuts. More specifically, those discussions often complain that the real money is being spent on Social Security and Medicare, the so-called entitlements. This tendency was perhaps best illustrated on the February 21st broadcast of ABC's World News with Diane Sawyer. Reporter Jake Tapper noted that Obama wasn't proposing Social Security or Medicare cuts in his budget, and then correspondent Jonathan Carl turned in a segment based on a concept borrowed from a YouTube video. Stacks of pennies were laid out to represent federal spending. Most of the pennies can't be touched. That's Social Security and Medicare. The implication, it would seem, is that there's something wrong with this. Thus, we're told the entire conversation about the budget is confined to a debate over how to cut a penny or two from this giant table of pennies. The penny experiment is supposed to help us understand the budget, but that's not really what it does. It confines the discussion to the pennies we're spending. As Carl put it in his segment, quote, unless you're willing to talk about cutting entitlements or defense or both, really, there's no way you can even think about balancing the budget, close quote. But that's misleading. We could just as easily talk about the pennies the government collects, as in taxes, from individuals and from corporations. There are endless discussions of how to raise additional revenue, raising the estate tax, ending the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy, a financial speculation tax. But these ideas aren't part of the penny discussion in the corporate media, which wants to talk instead about things like shared sacrifice, which means pain for most of us and next to none for a select few. What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away In the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt is using small business as their bank. Good news, we still have small businesses and banks. Please welcome Jeffrey Leonard. Hey, everybody, thank you very much. Hey, Mr. Leonard, thanks so much for coming on. Now, sir, uh, let, 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 we've got to kind of unpack your story for the people here. You've got an article in, 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 in this month's Washington Monthly? Is it a monthly? Exactly. Okay. Washington Monthly, it says what the government uh, should do for small business. Correct? Actually, or it doesn't say what the government should do for small business. It says what's ailing small business? Because the question politicians and uh, the, the media are asking is why aren't small businesses hiring more people in this recovery? Too much why government regulation. Big? Well, that's one thing. A government regulation is hurting them. Healthcare costs hurting them. The fact that their banks aren't lending to them is hurting them. But another thing is increasingly the big companies that are supposed to pay them in 30 days for, uh, for their goods and services are paying them in 60 and 120 days. And they've done that systematically as a new policy. So you, 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 you call that there's something called net 60. 
Explain, right. explain what that is to the people who, who may not understand that, high finance the way I do. It's that, uh, <laughs> it's that at the, from the day you provide an invoice, after you've completed the work, it takes the big companies 60 days to pay you. Now, I have to pay, if I'm a small business, I have to pay in a month to everybody who provides to me, correct? Well, and you have to pay before that to buy the, uh, the raw materials and all the supplies and things you need. So you're, you're way more than a month. But so yeah. you're, you're a big company and I'm a little company and you hire me to do something for you for your big project. I'm paying everybody out on time and you're paying me a month late. And you say all these big businesses are doing it now. Well, I won't say all of them, but uh, uh, look, I'm just a name business name, guy. Sir, name some names, sir. Name some names. Who's and the I'm one screwing around, the small businesses this, well, here? I go around this country and I invest and, and talk to small businesses all over the country. And I'm in California with one of my businesses and they say, oh, Cisco Systems just changed their policy from net 30. Now we get paid net 60 or more. Now, uh, Cisco I, is a sponsor, so we're going to take that out of this. <laughs> we're going to edit that out later, okay? okay? Just be prepared for that. Name somebody else because we can't use that. Okay. So, uh, all around this country in hardware stores that are selling to uh, Fortune 100 companies or uh, a company in Pennsylvania that is providing waste treatment services for, um, for big companies, they're being told that they're, they're being, going to be paid later and later than they, than they used to. Well, but so what? Because that's the market, okay? It is what the market will bear, and the invisible hand of the market has said that these big companies get to do what they want, and the small companies should either get big or go home. Right? That's a free market, sir. Mr. Colbert. There are, that is my name. There are 20 million small businesses in this country. Okay. They create 60% of the jobs created in the last decade. I, read this, the, I know I read the handouts. Country. So... You're good with a teleprompter, but you've obviously never met a payroll, because it, you are talking about playing Sir, I am with... a river unto my people. <laughs> Gloves are off, mother <laughs> Go on. Let's hear your little theory. So... Uh, <laughs> Part of the, the answer here is just to bring this to the light of day because it's really, uh, it's about the, the, the American way, the small businessman in this country. The, this country has been built on the backs of small businessmen. That may be the case, but don't all small businessmen eventually want to become big businessmen? I guess what I'm asking is, how are you going to make the big business do what you want for the small business? Don't they well, get to call the shots? I'm not God, and I don't, it's not what I want, and it's not really about the big business. It's, a, it's about changes in this economy that have given businesses increasingly that kind of a power. And it's, it's more about a bully pulpit. And, you, you know, you asked about, well, should government do this? But government uh, enables the, allows the banks to foreclose on your home if you don't pay within 30 days and if you go into arrears. Yes. So uh, every game needs a, needs, needs a referee. And this is a perfect example where the government pays their customers and every big corporation in America is a huge client of the government. They get huge procurement orders from the government and the government pays in 30 days. If the government pays you in 30 days, why shouldn't you pay your suppliers in 30 days? Because no and one why can make me. Because no one can make me. Oh, the government. But if I, if I, don't, if I don't pay you in, in 30 days, I get the interest on that money that I'm holding on to, and you have to eat all the cost of research and development. Don't talk to me about it. Take it on the road. You go and you take this show to Kansas City, 
and you talk and you have a whole and you put small businessmen in this audience and you let them and you hear from them what's going on in this economy then you'll know what I'm talking about. Listen, I'm not talking about what's fair York. and what's not fair. Uh, I'm not. talking about what you can make business do and not make business do. So what are you going to back your suggestion up with, sir? Government regulation? Because who else is going to force... I, you you know, think that the government shouldn't make contracts with people who don't pay off in 30 days. You said that, sir. Uh, honestly... Did I you, you say I, that, sir? Uh, I didn't say that. But, you did not uh, say in that? All, in all, <laughs> I said that's one one remedy the government could follow because so you did it's say that. fair is. So I just caught you. I just caught you in a lie. Good job. Go on. Good yes, job. go on. Excellent, excellent. Listen, I didn't realize yeah. it was possible to fire up people this strongly about um, bookkeeping. <laughs> I understand that people are hurting yeah. out there, but how how do you force the companies to do it? Well, because they are not known for their sense of shame. Yeah, Stephen, honestly, I, d I think it's more about a, a, a dialogue in this country, uh, the media. It's about the bully pulpit of the, of the presidency and the government saying, wait a minute, what about these practices? We have a small business administration, which is supposed to be the advocate. Go on their website, the advocate of small businesses in this country. Why not study this, this issue? And why not call attention to it? And you know what? I don't think most corporate, big corporate CEOs even know down the chain that this is happening so much because these practices are happening. Why are they happening? When, when many of these companies, if you look on their websites and they say, why did they change their policy from paying net 30 to 60, 90, or 120 days, and they'll tell you because everyone else is doing it, because our consultants said that it's the industry norm now to do it. So they're like teenagers. Well, and maybe they're like teenagers that if it were brought to light and they were forced to fess up about it and we had a dialogue about it, it in, in both in the media and amongst politicians, maybe they would not do it. Well, if they were really like teenagers and we approached these corporations, they would scream, I hate you and go to their room. But that's true, too. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you for joining us. <laughs> Jeffrey Leonard from the Washington Monthly. The attack on public sector unions is, of course, an attack on unions, but it's also an attack on the very idea of the public. It's a perfect combo target for Republicans and corporatists, because if they succeed in getting rid of unions, and if they succeed in delegitimizing the public, then there's nobody standing between the cruelest bosses and the most exploited workers. Government regulators and unionized workers are the only two actors who can restrain corporate power. Take them both off the stage, and corporations have the show to themselves. And so we've come now to the discrediting of the public, whether it's public sector workers or public education, or public spaces, or the public square, or public toilets for that matter. Hell, even the related concepts of the public good, or the public wheel, or the commons, or community. 
are all suspect in the eyes of the Glenn Becks and Rush Limbaugh's and Scott Walker's of this world. They want us to believe that everything public is bad and everything private good. By smearing the idea of the public and by making a fetish of the private, they're trying to install the CEO as dictator in every workplace in America. That's the hidden agenda behind this propaganda campaign, and we can't fall for it or it'll fall on us. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. I was looking at something on the Daily Coast website yesterday, or maybe it was the day before. Uh, I was not looking for this particular thing, it was something else, but this caught my eye and it has been bugging me ever since, and I decided I wanted to say something about it um, at the end of the show on Friday. It is a simple thing, uh, but it's the kind of graph that tends to upset the common wisdom. What it is, is the stock market, going back to 1993, smoothed out a lot. Uh, but this is it. The blue line uh, stands for growth, stock market going up. The red line stands for shrinking, for downturns. Uh, it also just so happens that the blue line also stands for democratic presidents. In that red-blue way we've gotten used to in political reporting, blue stands for stock market growth and for a democratic administration. Red stands for stock market downturns and a Republican administration. And if you focus on just this part, you will see that regardless of how you personally are doing, this part of our nation is living large. Despite what you hear about the economy at home, the stock market is in tall cotton. And the reason the stock market is doing so well is that the companies whose stock makes up the stock market, those companies are doing very, very well. Very well. Very, very well. The government released new figures last week on just how very, very well companies are doing. In the last three months of 2010, American corporations were cranking out profits at a record rate. They have not grown like this since 1950. If they clipped along like this for a whole year, they'd make $1.68 trillion, trillion with a T, as in totally rich. Trillions, my Friday night friends, are large. They are very large. Trillions divide up into great big slices. I would like to congratulate my sort of bosses at GE, General Electric, which owns nearly half of this network. They cleared $14.2 billion last year. Goldman Sachs, which never wanted that bailout anyway, uh, they recorded more than $8 billion in net earnings. GM, welcome back to life, thanks to help from the American taxpayers. GM made $4.7 billion. And Google, the new economy, with $18.9 billion in profit. But hey, what was wrong with the old economy? If you're an oil company like ExxonMobil, not much. Exxon made $149 billion. So the stock market is doing great. Corporations are doing great. 
and the bosses of corporations, they're also doing great. <laughs> After the Great Recession, these guys rebuilt Fat City really fast, and now they are living in it. Check it out. Last year, CEO pay jumped 27%. What? Typo? No. Last year, CEO pay jumped 27%, reported in USA Today. In technical terms, that is an awful lot on top of an already god-awful lot. The paper's top dog, top, top dog uh, was this guy, Philippe Doman. I think that's how you say his last name. It's D-A-U-M-A-N. Uh, he's the chairman of Viacom. Uh, $84.5 million. Yeah, that guy's recession is over. Yours may or may not be, depending on whether or not you are average. The government reports that average worker pay grew just 2.1% last year, which is the technical way of saying almost nothing, flat, going nowhere. So the rich guys are getting way richer. Think about this. CEO pay up 27% in a year. Um, you, my average friend, not getting way richer. Average worker pay, flat. 27% for the CEOs, flat for average workers. I am not trying to start a class war here. I am just saying this is what's going on. The CEOs are doing way better. Average workers, not underlined. But today we got what passes for good news for the commoners. The government's new jobs report said unemployment fell a tick to 8.8%. The economy added 230,000 private sector jobs. Sounds like a lot and it's better than nothing, but we did lose 8 million jobs in the Great Recession and we have a lot of ground to make up. Ezra Klein, writing today at the Washington Post, said this, quote, at this rate, getting back to the 5% unemployment rate we saw in early 2008 will take us until 2018. We can't wait that long. We are, in fact, in a recovery, as you can see uh, in this graph from Calculated Risk. We are in a recovery. It's just an incredibly slow recovery after an incredibly frightening fall. And while all of this is happening, while the stock market's recovering and CEOs are making bank, it is regular people who work for a living, the ones who cash paychecks, who are being told it's time to sacrifice, right? Politicians at the state and federal level keep saying, we're broke, we're broke, we're broke. We have to have some shared sacrifice. But when they say shared sacrifice, what they mean is... They mean cutting teacher pay by amounts that really matter. They mean laying off half the school district staff in Philadelphia while the state works to shovel a huge, new, bigger hole in the state's deficit in order to give hundreds of millions of dollars to corporations. They mean raising taxes on working class families and the elderly in Michigan. Raising taxes on working class people and the elderly in Michigan in order to finance hundreds of millions of dollars to give away to business. They mean cutting programs that help poor people heat their homes. That is an Obama administration proposal, by the way. They mean declaring a financial emergency, making the deficit way worse with a bunch of corporate giveaways, and then cutting money from programs for the disabled, like they're doing in Florida. This economic strategy is costing the nation a bundle. I mean, all we hear about is cuts, right? But it's one thing to talk about cutting spending. The thing that is being lost in translation is that this is not just cutting. This is a transfer of wealth. Of wealth that specifically might otherwise be able to close a budget deficit. And instead, it is being shoveled out the door to corporate interests and to the people who, frankly, are already doing great right now in the economy. Check this out. That national deficit Republicans keep warning us about, the serious moral threat they say it poses... That deficit would be cut in half if we let the Republican Bush-era tax cuts for the richest people in the country expire. The deficit would be cut in half if the Bush tax cuts were allowed to expire. Ezra Klein again posting this graph. The other big thing we could do to fix the nation's budget is to start making corporations pay their share. 
Senator Bernie Sanders, the master of populist righteous outrage, posted a list this week of what he calls the 10 worst corporate income tax avoiders. Number one on Senator Sanders' list, ExxonMobil, $19 billion in 2009 profits. What did they pay in taxes? Goose egg. They got $156 million in an IRS rebate. Number two for Mr. Sanders, Bank of America, $4.4 billion in profits in 2010. Paid nothing in taxes. They got a $1.9 billion tax refund. Number three, General Electric. Hi, boss. $26 billion in profits over the last five years. No taxes. $4.1 billion refund from the IRS, Senator Sanders says, and nothing due to Uncle Sam in 2010. When you pay your taxes, it always hurts, right? But you think, I'm doing my part. Imagine what part you could do if your income was $26 billion over five years if you actually paid any taxes on it. Those are the haves who are also now the get mores. Who should pay for that and why? Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm skipping voicemails today to continue my uh, occasional and awkwardly named source story series. Uh, if you have been listening for a little while and, and make sure you never miss an episode, then you've probably heard me uh, go over these before. Uh, basically, what I like to do is, you know, pick pick one show, one podcast uh, that I, you know, at least sometimes use as a source for Best of the Left and tell you some sort of background story about it, uh, you know, details about the show, details about how I came across it. When I told the story about uh, on the media, I talked about how they are very uh, directly but not intentionally responsible for uh, the way that I came up with the theme song for the show. Very interesting stuff. Today, I want to tell you about my uh, very first interaction with This American Life. And I'm very excited about this story. It's, uh, I mean, th This American Life, I think, does for me, as it does for many, many, many people, holds a very special place in my heart. So much so that when I think about it, I, I, I want to give them credit for, uh, for getting me interested in radio in the first place. And that's almost true, but it's not quite true. I, I remember the, the first time I heard the show, uh, I, I remember that I was already addicted to, to talk radio. So I liked radio. I, you know, it was an important part of my daily routine, but I think This American Life is what tipped me over from liking radio to falling in love with it. So let me set the scene for you. Uh, for really long-term listeners, you might remember that many, many years ago, I was uh, living in California. I was a FedEx driver of all things. Um, I was kind of floating through life, didn't know what I wanted to do. I had met a FedEx driver who was insanely happy. And I thought, huh, well, if he's happy, maybe I'll try that. So I became a FedEx driver. And that is how I, uh, you know, ended up on the road listening to the radio for eight or nine hours a day, and which is directly responsible for me being able to start this show the way I did because I had all that radio I was listening to. So anyways, I, um, you know, I, 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 I loved radio. I had purchased a, um, a satellite radio to put in my truck. I listened to that all day long, every day. This is before the invention of podcasts. So I'm on my way to work. It's about six in the morning and, um, it's still dark outside. The, the sun is just about to rise. I'm 
you know, on the freeway. I'm headed to, out to the warehouse to pick up my packages for the day. And and I think it was probably exactly six o'clock because it ticks over and a new show comes on. And it's something that I had never heard before. My little satellite radio display said the name This American Life, but the concept of the show, the name of the show, nothing about it had ever crossed my consciousness in any way. I went into this 100% blind, had no idea what I was in for. And the show that started didn't introduce itself. So it was just a voice, you know, somebody speaking. I had no, no idea who it was. I had no idea what, the, you know, the name of the show doesn't quite indicate what, you, what you're in for. And so I'm driving along. It's dark. It's quiet. I'm by myself. And I hear this. The first thing you need to know about Lori is that normally she's not the kind of girl who does this sort of thing at all. She doesn't write to strangers. She doesn't do fan mail. But she was looking at, you know, the, the page in certain magazines where they have the little pictures of the people who write for the magazine? She was looking at that. And she saw the photo of this writer who she liked. The picture was blurry, but he had this intense look in his eye. And you could tell he was smart and cute, both at the same time. But I saw this picture and I was like, that guy's my soulmate. And I know that's completely insane, but I knew that I, ha I could not not contact him because I would always regret it if I didn't. So I wrote this letter to the magazine, you know, to him, care of the magazine, and I made up a story. I said, I think that, you know, I, I know this is going to sound really weird, but I saw your picture on the contributors page and you look exactly like this guy that I met in the airport years ago. This is this is a complete lie. Right. So I said, um, you know, we I was changing planes and you were going into one gate and I was going into another and we struck up this conversation and you were talking about how you wanted to become a writer. And I said, you know, I'm not sure if it's you. I know this sounds really strange, but, um, you know, if you remember this, let me know. And if it's not you, let me know also just so that, you know, I know that it wasn't you. Ah, uh, very clever though, the ending, like that you want to know, that he basically has to call you even if he's not the guy, just to put your mind at ease. It was, it was my way of getting to meet him. She figured that in the extremely unlikely event that they actually sort of got along, and it led to something bigger, well, then she would admit the truth, and no harm done. Remember, she had never done this kind of scam before. She had no idea how complicated it could get. So there you go. That's you know less than two minutes of audio from the beginning of that show. And I'm sure you understand how I felt at the time. I mean, what are you going to do? Not listen to the end of that story? That's ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, a minute into this show, I was completely hooked. I realized I had stumbled across something amazing. And as I said, you know, this is before the invention of podcasts. I had to, you know, find their website. Uh, you know, you can download at the time. You could download, uh, you know, individual episodes and listen to them that way. I guess they were available on Audible.com as well. And, um, you know, and so I, I found the show and never looked back. Basically, I was, I was like, this, this is something I need to hang on to. So as if it wasn't obvious enough already, of course, I suggest that if you are one of these uh, 
sad, sad people who doesn't already listen to This American Life, definitely go check that out. It is available as a podcast. You know, I think the most popular podcast in iTunes uh, most days. And um, and then that episode that I just played an excerpt from is called Mind Games. So if you want to look it up uh, yourself, that's the name of it. And I'm going to include a link to that specific episode in the show notes for this show. So that's that. And obviously, I enjoy uh, sharing with you guys what sort of shows uh, I like and you know, suggesting you check out other things. Uh, and I would also love to hear from you. Uh, I, I get some suggestions for shows I should check out by email, um, but I want to open up this opportunity. If you're interested to call into the voicemail line and suggest some shows that you think listeners of Best of the Left would enjoy, you know, maybe stuff they don't hear clips from on this show, but uh, but that they would enjoy anyways. That's probably not the sort of thing that it would necessarily occur to you to do normally. Uh, you know, call up to, to this show and suggest listeners check out something else. But, uh, you know, I'm putting the offer out there, so if you... Uh, if you're like me, and I know a lot of people are, if you if you have a handful of shows that you love, you love telling people about it, so feel free to call into the voicemail line 206-202-3410 and tell us all about it. Now, I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Uh, Louise S. signed up for a leftist membership, uh, paying for a full year in advance, but started way back on September 10th, 2009, and has stuck with the show since then. And Paul G. also signed up for a leftist membership, monthly membership, starting uh, way back on March 12th, 2010. So huge thanks to uh, Louise and Paul and all the members and donors who keep the show going. Thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for supporting the show the way you do and making uh, it possible for me to do this. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay connected with the show and tell people online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and get details about the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofthelift.com. Now black and white Cause you took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only